Bill Bissett was born in uh, Halifax, Nova Scotia, on November the 23rd, 1939. Canadian poet famed for anti-conventional style. Dropped out of Dalhousie and UBC because of... Uh, I don't know. There's always so many reasons for everything. <laughs> Who knows which one to prioritize, if any. It happened. Yeah. Oh, I wanted to pursue life as a writer and painter. I didn't want to be in school forever. And you felt constricted in some way? or Yeah, yeah I did. For some people, that works. For me, it didn't work so well. Well, and for quite a few poets, too. Known for concrete poetry, sound poetry, chanting, barefoot dancing, visual elements on the published page, a visual artist, known also for audio recordings. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Excellent. So can we start by reflecting on blurring the borders? Yes. Great starting place for everything, always. Borders are kind of meaning and self-defense or defensive meanings or paradoxical identifications with subsets, sets, groups, subgroups of meanings and of activities and of persona, persona. And while they're sometimes very important... Limits, for example? Uh, it's great to let as many of them go as possible most of the time, I think. Not being mad at them or finding them unnecessary, but feeling they're not necessary all the time to be able to blur the borders. It's an aesthetic and uh, a poetic massage the idiom devoutly to be wished. And it's done because... Human behavior gets over-regulated and overly based on rules. If there's one life, and if it's organic as possible, that's more excellent. Even if there's more than one life, the need is as strong as ever to be as organic as possible. When I was, I don't know, 18 or 19, I went to the Commonwealth Games in Edmonton, and I shinnied up a pole and cut down, it was the end of the games, and I cut down a banner, and a friend of mine did the same thing, as a memento. And the police were f watching or something and followed us, threw us in jail, and we were hauled up in court for... Uh, possession of stolen goods under $200. Oh, my. Even though the cops, one of them had said that, that they'd done exactly the same thing in Montreal at the time of the games there. And I remember distinctly a drawing of a middle finger raised in a little cell that we were, that the uh. police had drawn. And there was a kind of a rage <laughs> that was born inside yes. me. Yes. At the injustice of an institution that was supposed to regulate justice yes. or ensure justice. Was there anything like that that happened to you that set you on this course of unconventionality? I think I was wanting to be who I am and all the multiplicity that that involves. And there are so many realms of consciousness and so many ideas that we experience in terms of self-actualization, self self-realizations with others and with ourselves, that I didn't want to be restricted to any one particular vocabulary nomenclature. Also, the readings of Gertrude Stein and James Joyce influenced me a lot, as did the works of Jean Cocteau, Pablo Picasso, Simone de Beauvoir, Jean-Paul Sartre. All these people I read when I was around 14, owing to a lucky instance of a the brother of a good friend of mine at the time came back from Europe with news of all these people, some of whom were still living. Actually, many of whom are still then living. So I, I became entranced with these worlds, and Tennessee Williams, and so many writers, so many writers, Lillian Hellman, Eugene O'Neill. All these writers' worlds seem to really talk about the multiplicity of choices that really is available to people, and that we're actually not robots. 
Mm. No aspersions on robots, but we have multiple ideas and multiple yearnings and multiple satisfactions. And we need to live with gratification of as many of these yearnings and satisfactions as possible. And society can put and limits And society on can put limits, the church can put limits, mm. the industry can put limits, and we still see those limiting forces at play today. You know, not everyone is liberated yet, but that is the path, basically, I believe, that underneath it all, everyone really wants self-liberation, but they've somehow internalized some rule of behavior so strongly or some uh, apprehension so strongly that it's very difficult for them to arrive at. And it is difficult to arrive at anyway because people will ask you to stop. Remember the last line of, is it a portrait of the artist of the young man, James Joyce, where it says, I sought out to leave the community into which I had been born to forge out into the greater world and forge the smithy of my soul. Yeah. That was very, very important to me. And of course he was an exile. Yes. And yeah. was able to understand Ireland from outside. Yes. And that also happens too. It's like, if you if you go into some kind of exile, like I I left home very early um, because of this and that and so on. But mostly in abstract terms, what we've already touched on here, from a distance you can actually see how it can work for some people, the ritual, the repetition, because they do work for self healing and chanting. But then if you organize your life around ritual and repetition, that's a further emblazoning of of these ideas on your your daily behavior so that there, there's no way for you to reach out and touch someone as the Bell commercial used to say to be yourself and to explore an art. A lot of the explorations that we come upon in our art seem brand new at the time to some people, to many people but actually they may only be new to the culture in which we were born. They may not be new in terms of the big picture of all art of all time at all. They're now thinking that the first works in cave paintings were actually non-objective, actually abstract. If everyone followed that path, then we'd be living in a, a rather chaotic... It might not be, though. See, that's the enigma. I don't believe it would be so chaotic. If no one decided to show up to work. Then other people would show up to work, or the work would happen differently. I mean, maybe going into the coal mines and children getting the harder to get out pieces of coal or diamonds from the mines was not such a very good idea. Everyone got TB, didn't they? But, you know, we were committed to the evolutionary thrust, regardless of how much it harms, because the agricultural revolution and the family farm was no picnic either. So, I mean, it's strange. Who can know? We're all just little tiny fledgling creatures, aren't we? Here on the slenderest of threads at all. You're talking about the poet as representative of political change. Can be can be. Poets aren't necessarily representative of political change. They can be, but not always. Sometimes they can be as conservative and not wanting change as anyone else in their work and in their lives. And you've been attacked by conservative poets yes, throughout. Yes. And I've come to realize change is not easy for people. And that's why the attacks, they want to stop it. But do you see yourself as an unacknowledged legislator? It's kind of a, a heavier portmanteau than I would want. If I were a politician, poet-politician, then I would actually run for stuff and be like Tommy Douglas. You'd do something yeah. about it. So I'd try and do something about it in my writing. But some poets might be like um, Stephen Harper, you know? Mm -hmm. So just because one is a poet doesn't mean one is... Got a particular agenda. All that far-reaching in their ideas. 
Or, or even a particular agenda, yeah. Especially Where? after you've seen a lot of stuff and uh, comings and goings and this and that. I can understand now why some people feel all the change is, is trivia because what isn't changing is something that's ongoing in people and it will it change? Maybe it will. Maybe the reptilian fold will evaporate from our brains and we'll have some other physiological guarantee of survival. Interest coming first in our lives rather than the overreaching effect of the reptilian fold. See, I don't know that. Do you know that? I know that the reptilian uh, animal fold, as you put it, is, is as strong as ever in me. So, Yes, yeah, it is. And for the good, and sometimes less good. And without it, could we survive? I don't know. I mean, nobody knows that. You know, I think what's connected to it is the fulfillment one attains when creating something. Oh, yeah. I think the creative urge is reptilian. I think it's part of it, yes. When we create something and we're we're fine with the result, we feel we're more capable of survival and enjoyment of survival. I think that's true. You look back on a huge output that you have. How do you uh, relate to it, to what you've produced and created? I think Picasso said something once that influenced me a lot and guided me a lot, which is don't look back. Well, actually, Bob Dylan said don't look back. But when it comes to output, Picasso's idea was just to keep going. And that's kind of my idea, just to keep going, keep doing, because it's what I chose to do. And I chose it over other things I could have done. And so all choices are not like pieces of cake and easy to do. So if you chose something over something other things, and you could have done those other things as well, um, you kind of make sure you're always doing it, what you did chose or choose. Mm-hmm. What chose me or you? What chooses? What chooses us? What chooses us? We can choose how much to let it in. Yes, and how much effect we have on the choosing. Your notoriety, or at least there was a period of notoriety when you uh, received Canada Council grants and produced material that was deemed pornographic by parliamentarians. Again, you're pushing limits. There, you're not. I think at the time you said if I was actually writing pornography, I wouldn't need grants. That's quite true. But one thing that strikes me is that now in in, in our society, more and more of the the rap music that we hear is just gratuitous bitches and hoes. And the door may have been opened for this, which is fine and laudatory. But look what they're using it for. I think contextualizing things is really important for everything including the Bible and everything else a, a lot of people that do rap came, come from ghettos within ghettos within ghettos within ghettos within ghettos endlessly and there's no way out there's no way out there's no way out other than through doing rap or and, sports and when you're at the very bottom your terms for people you're living with or working with even if it's doing a, a pipe deal you know or, or something and are close to violence all the time and the characterization of people is very reductionist and simplistic because that is all they're allowed. The more access you have to a better life, the more, I swear, I tell you, I believe this is true, the more access you have to a wider range of expression and understanding with others. The poorer you are, the less you have that access to everything. Not just material goods, but expression of consciousness. I think we need to reflect where, where we come from and what we are in order to be changing. I don't mean in a social work sense of the word, though I value that, of course. But 
I, I think if you're coming from a world in which you're all living on cellars and, and maybe you get enough food to eat or maybe you don't and you're living in destroyed wrecked buildings because business has moved and, and so on, I don't think you have access to a very, what is the word, um, a s extravagant range of expression. As Bertolt Brecht said in the Three Penny Opera, which he wrote with Kurt Weill, which is such a brilliant work, the belly the belly's empty, that's where it all begins. So it's the belly of the mind and the belly of the belly. And if the belly of the belly is empty, so usually is the belly of the mind in terms of the amount of ideas it can hold. It can feel them, but it may not know the vocabulary for them. Uh, it can be very aware of subtleties, incredible subtleties, but linguistically, or in terms of vocabulary, it might have a simpler way. And if you're a woman, maybe the whole thing is the only way to go on that deep, distraught, uh, barren economic level. And if you're a dude, maybe the incredibly overwrought macho production is the only way they have to go too, which it's attendant qualities of shame, which the woman also has too. I mean, it's, I, I strongly believe the less food there is, the less well people treat each other and stuff. And they can dream of it though. And in rap, I love some rap very much. And um, I'm I'm multifaceted in my appreciation. No, I never wrote pornography, but I did talk explicitly about some sexual uh, stuff for sure. But Blue Ointment Press, which I was running, which is where most of the money went to, I was running a publishing house. We did, I don't know, hundreds of books, hundreds of books by many, many people. I think that was actually about, like most things, uh, politics. Not actually what the people are saying who are objecting to this or that, but it's the politics. Most of those MPs were conservative MPs, and they were really trying to cut down the liberal tree of life, as they saw it, and to attack the Canada Council was a very good way in their agenda of doing it. and Talking to their audience, basically. Whipping up their audience, too, yeah. because they're responsible for the anti-art message as much as their base is. And when people become brutal, people go against art. And some of those, these ideas are prevalent again today, and they're very dangerous ideas, Christian fundamentalists and right-wing politicians, and they don't want expression. And mm -hmm. I don't think they understand why they're so rabidly anti-art. All their ideas about productivity and contributing money to the society don't apply in those cases because actually art contributes a huge amount to the society in terms of money, if that's all they're thinking about, productivity. Yes, mm. it does. Mm. A huge, it's an industry. Yeah. And they benefit from it in every way. Well, the other thing, too, that really gets to me is the fact that, okay, so you can be efficient, you can cut back on all sorts of programs, you you know, we're under constraints, and uh, but, but what do we live for? War. Yeah, in that world, because I suppose it feeds money into the industrial uh, military, military complex, complex that Eisenhower warned everybody yes, about. And right. it's still running the show. Look yes. at the limitations that were put on Obama's brilliant ambitions, what he was going to do when he got in power, you know? It's very disheartening how uninformed the people that are running Canada and the United States and most parts of the world are. But we got to keep hoping and keep trying and there is something in humans that is very retrograde and very nasty reptilian and reptilian and the thing is to not focus on it just you know be aware of it though that's the thing never lose a sight of it because mm -hmm. it's the heart of politics 
making groups and subgroups and seeing what we can dominate and what we can run, you know? Mm-hmm. It's very unfortunate. I hope we can all get over it. I mean, you would think, watching the Scots play by Shakespeare, <laughs> that that would, you know, cure people of ambitions and, and power, but, you know, it actually doesn't. I don't know why it doesn't. <laughs> like, for instance, with computer technology now, we have the means... We have the ability to get food to everyone in the world, even yeah. all seven and a half billion of us now, whatever it is, mm-hmm. seven billion plus. But we don't have the political will because we're not able to get those engines of, of mutuality service into coordinate effects. We're just not able to. Because well, it's 1%, 99%. We don't have, there extent. is that problem. Yeah. We don't have the circuitry for easily distributing it without offending anyone. No one has to get upset. It doesn't have to be like a revolution, but it hasn't become clear to us how to do it yet. So we're still in the dark. It's so strange, isn't it? Shadow boxing in the dark. (laughs) (laughs) We're only beginning to see the light, but we don't know how to... That's a great song, Artie Shaw, I think, wrote it. Helen Forrest sang it. It was huge in my father's time. I loved Artie Shaw. I used to listen to music all the time very early age. I couldn't do sports. I was sick all the time. So I listened to all my parents' generation's music and before and my generations at that time and continued to listen to everything. I was in the hospital so much I was always seeing movies all the time. So it's only recently that I'm more interested in actual experience in life than movies. I thought movies were life. Now I see the conventions in movies Mm. and I can abstract I can enjoy and watch and abstract how they're put together, whereas I did actually for the longest time think they were life because I had very little life experience like a lot of people that live most of their lives in hospitals. Vicarious. Yes, yes, mm. without even knowing because yeah. no one says life isn't like this because why would you watch it then? So I believed in the happy ending and I believed in social progress and I still do. I'm not so much about the happy ending now, but I believe social progress is possible. But then there's also this other paradox, isn't there, that everyone's doing the best they can with what they know to do. And if, you, if you've been imbued with this and that idea, well, then maybe you can't do the third option. You really need to think about it. Like if you've been imbued with two options, an option number three is really, door open number three is really hard to get to. Mm-hmm. So you got to like come to all these experiences. And it means giving up a lot of what you consider your sacred identity because your identity is much more multiple in terms of what you're capable of thinking and doing than you, you could have already dreamt of. And again, that's reflected in your whole oeuvre. Hopefully, yeah. Uh, well, on the way over here, I was listening to some irritating commercials. Yes, excellent. And uh, was reflecting on uh, how they lie to us. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, or they'll tell half-truths. Yes, of course. And, uh, of course, that's the same sort of thing that yes. we get from politicians, too. Yes, yes. And I just wonder, again, uh, are you trying to combat it, and if so, how? I'm sometimes trying to combat it. By showing that language is sort of an object that can be manipulated. Yes, language is fluid, an object that can be manipulated. It can definitely be used for to call brainwashing and propaganda. I guess there's about 30-plus approaches to writing poetry one can be involved in. I guess I write about 11. Political, sound poetry, which is so important to me. Why is it so important? Visual poetry, because I want to get the sounds through, the sound that language makes. And each syllable, each letter, each sound, I want to be able to say all these independently of how they 
art meaning organized to create meaning yes okay and uh, visual poetry likewise has similar abilities using letters because most of the languages maybe all probably were originally pictographic mm-hmm. and being a painter as well I'm very aware of the pictures the images inside the letters or with the letters even though now like for instance in our lifetimes Prepared or in them. some people's lifetimes yeah. maybe not ours but we can see because sometimes dates get a little when was the Chinese revolution I was alive then maybe you weren't no 48 I think it was yeah so I, w- I was I was a little boy then then we see the transition from pictographic language to what you would call what would you call Chinese writing today it's not pictographic anymore it's not hieroglyphic it's not hieroglyphic it's like the changes that English probably went through probably originally pictographic and became abstracted yeah, kind of pared down. Pared down, yes, yeah, yes, yeah. yes. So right. you're saying that by paring down, you're paring down meaning as well? You can or, be. Or nuance? You can be, yes, you can be. And also you can return the letters to some of their pictures and play with them with sounds and visuals. The problem is that that meaning is only your meaning rather than a sort of conventional... Exactly, mu- and then you, then you get to ask the question, is there any universal meaning? And we all go around the world doing our things each day, sometimes on the assumption that there is universal meaning, and that's a, that's a dynamic of comfort and resource for people. But it may be an illusion, and maybe we can switch and feel just as comfortable and resourceful knowing there's only individual meaning. And it's also changing, and maybe it's only based on a projection. But, but we still do have an agreed-upon language or series of languages or clusters of languages all the world over, and maybe when we want to learn how to work a new stove, the manual is trying to tell us how to do that, and then the, then the importance of an agreed-upon meaning is really important, or can be, but if it's translated from one language to another, it still may be kind of evasive, seeming. That's not the only purpose of language. Language is also we make sounds and share with each other. So there's visual, and then there's narrative, non-narrative. All these approaches to writing and his historic, romantic, lyrical, sexual, metaphysical, spiritual, religious. I mean, there's so many approaches to using language. I mean, the ultimate objective is understanding, I would imagine. Or I don't know. It may be sharing without understanding. There are so many realms of consciousness, yes. And then, of course, also uh, fusion poetry, mm-hmm. which I love writing still, in which there are different approaches to writing in the same poem. A poem is like a container, isn't it? Yeah, it's sort of contrary to what you're getting at. It's a, you want to bust it open, but you also want to achieve certain effects. Yes, life is continuing paradox. At one level, that's a paradox, and another level, it isn't. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, yes, and yes, yes, yes. I mean, when it comes to painting, that's so remarkable because there was a time culminating with and after the Renaissance when. The invention of perspective was considered the biggest deal possible, and how one replicated perspective was considered the most award-worthy kind of painting one could do. Mm -hmm. Then with the invention of photography, as McLuhan brilliantly always was saying, with the change of technology, everything else changes. So then painting wasn't required with the introduction of photography to replicate some realistic, quotes Mm -hmm. idea of representation anymore. So then painting was free to actually seem brand new and to seem what what was the word you said bursting through the confines yes 
course, actually, as it becomes like abstract art, it becomes closer to original art than caves. Yeah, full circle. So nothing is new under the sun. But that doesn't mean <laughs> that there isn't new within a culture in a specific time. Yes, yes, I think that's Nietzsche. Yes, because yeah. we live within very small aggregates of time and space, don't we? Yeah, Nietzsche talks about uh, morals. Certain behavior is immoral at certain times and not at others. Yes, yes, McLuhan also said that. It depends on the current technology. The morality of a family farm is quite different than the morality, and, and obviously it would be, than today in the post-computer generation. We have more choices now. One person can't afford to stay home while the other person goes out to work, whether it's a woman or a man, doesn't matter. They're both going to work now, I'm telling you. And just as poor for still working for less and working more. Which is, so which is like, progress? And is it progress? Yeah. I don't know. But then we don't have to play the old roles we had to. But now we're playing the new roles for less. It's always changing, isn't it? Yeah. This was in that period where you were under attack by the parliamentarians. Lip-wristed parasites, freeloaders, and probably perverts who deserve a swift <laughs> kick in the arse. You know, they include everything in there, homophobia. <laughs> what do poets everything. contribute to GNP? That's so ridiculous. What about uh, George Carlin? Is he a hero? I liked his work very much. I always liked that thing about going to Hawaii, and then he goes to all his stuff in a big bag, and then he goes to a, a smaller island off where he landed. So he leaves some of it back at the mainland, and then he goes to yet another island, so he leaves some on that island, goes to the next island, so he's carrying less each time. And then he can't go back now just from the last island to the mainland. He has to go through each island and pick up his stuff. I never forgot that. It was, I thought it was so brilliant. It was a wonderful long narrative that he did, and it was so funny and so fabulous. What and makes you think of George Carlin? Well, he had his shit. Piss, fuck. Oh, okay. Uh, pushing those boundaries. Well, the thing I was trying to say was I approve of that, and I certainly approve of Lenny Bruce. Mm. I approve of all that. I mean, I get the need for all that, to make public what is anyways going on in private. It's ridiculous to have an arbitrary separation. But again, it's all political, what happens to people. You know, on, on that level of, of objecting to somebody's freedom, you were talking about those MPs again. Many of them... Uh, went to jail uh, independently of their attacks on me. If you wait long enough, justice can happen, but uh, it can also happen in ways you couldn't predict. Some of them were importing emeralds from France into Canada. That was the original hotline guy. I'm given to understand. I don't know if I can say this is true, but he did do some time, and he's the one that started. And I don't know what you call them. They're not all Christians, but um, the ones who were religious were all practicing fundamentalist Christians. I don't think each person was. And someone went to jail for wife-beating. So the people that were attacking me weren't very nice people, basically. And they were power-hungry political people. And some people think of that instead of thinking, wouldn't it be nice to write a nice poem or do some Tai Chi? Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, I haven't done enough Tai Chi yet. Can we talk while I try and do Tai Chi? Sure. With all this coffee in me? Yeah, sure. Would you say then... Uh, if we can wind down this, the philosophical, theoretical thrust of your work by saying that if you end up living a life that's not your own, you've wasted it. Who said that? I'm not sure who said it. You want to live the life that's really your own. That's you don't right. want to be the representation of someone else's projections, dreams, or ideas for you, because that is a prison, or would be a prison, yes? Would you say that would be in line with your life's work, that message? 
Yes, yeah, I would say that, yeah, I would. Is there something that says it better? Many people probably say it better. Be yourself, Socrates, know thyself. Gertrude Stein, everything is the same and everything is different. Who came first, Napoleon the first? People are always saying it all the time. They're really wanting it, everyone's really wanting that. But people can get caught up in games of others and have their own desires for acceptance, which is so human and so poignant. And people will trade off parts of what they really want to do for it to be accepted. The trouble is you can't get those parts back without a break. As Margaret Atherton said, you gotta make a jailbreak and bust out and be yourself. So I think poets of all time have always, some of the time, many poets of all many times, have recommended being oneself, as have also philosophers, social theorists, psychiatrists. Psychiatry is all based on being yourself, isn't it? You're ill if you're not. And, and that is actually true. And you will do harm to yourself and others if you're not yourself. I'm speaking with Bill Bissett, an iconic, iconic Canadian poet, sound artist, painter, philosopher, king. <laughs> Prince of poetry. I just want to... Unperson. Unlabeled, uncategorized. I just wonder, because this is the bibliophile, if we could look at your work your book called Soul Arrow. Yes. The book was referenced in a, a book about Canadian book design by uh -huh. uh, Robert Bringhurst. Oh, wow, cool. It's filled with all sorts of images of your art, but also computer digital printout mm -hmm. looks. But then you've got all sorts of images using letters and words. And he suggests that this was quite influential in the way that poetry books may have been laid out and designed and, and the words played with on the page. Yes, all the, uh, the visual poem work in there, the concrete, different words we use, like that one there that looks like actually a tapestry. Yes. Uh, they were all done on uh, IBM Selectric and uh, Smith Corona. And they all had keys that you could press on, and some letters would stay, and as long as you kept your finger on it, it would keep replicating it. So that helped with the tapestry weaving of it. Some of them would take like days, and yeah. it was a lovely compliment to painting I was doing, which would be more based on brush, and when the muscle and the breath is there to make that stroke. And so Likewise with those, I could do a few lines and then come back to it, so I was always doing something. With typewriter, you can actually get a letter on top of another letter, yes. which with a computer you cannot. It won't make that mistake. It will not, or, yeah. so you lose a lot of design visual possibilities, because putting an O on top of an M, you get actually OM, of course, or MO, and turn the M upside down, you get a W, and you get WO or or owl. So I'm able to do some concrete visual work with the computer, but it doesn't have the exactitude the typewriter art does with it. But it has another kind of pleasure, Narv Enigma. There's a lot of the, which is more recent, I think it's like, when is that, 2005 maybe? But I, I love, I work with Word and I love it, you know, because yeah. it is what's happening, there's no choice. But I'm going to get another typewriter. I had three Smith Coronas and they all got lost. One's lost somewhere in Calgary, one's lost somewhere in Toronto, one is lost somewhere in Vancouver, I believe. The it's a narrative enigma. Yeah. 
It's funny, that's what happened with Randy Bachman. He lost one of his guitars, guitars and spent the next 20 years uh, looking for it and buying, buying them up. And oh my gosh, he had three to get one just as good as that one? To find the actual one if he could. Oh my gosh, did he? He never did get it. Oh no. my God, is he still buying? Well, he actually donated it to the uh, Gretsch a guitar museum oh. in Savannah, Georgia. Cool, excellent. So Gretsch called him up and said, listen, all the other guys have got a museum. You've got my museum. So, yes, uh, excellent. I'm hoping for a day off soon. I, I facilitate and I teach, and I'm poet in residence at Workman Arts, and I do other stuff. Workman Arts? Yes. Where's that? That's in Toronto. So I do office hours and have workshop and stuff, and I do other things. And so I'm looking for a day off soon. I can scour around, find a typewriter. I like to store shop. Three Smith Coronas, like 10 years ago almost. Yeah. They last forever. I got a store on Young Street, but I don't believe that store is even still there, but I'm going to look around. Could you just, uh, in winding down, tell us again about this, this book? and the? I love doing that book. I think it's the most visual, concrete, visual poetry book I've done. All my books include some of that, even my latest book, my first novel, called Novel, has a lot of drawings in it and some visual poetry, some concrete poetry. But that book, Soul Arrow, is all visual poetry and all concrete poetry. And why did you do it? I wanted to do a book that was all visual and concrete poetry with hardly anything else in it. Because? I wanted to show the breath in the letters, the aspiration in the letters, the hope in the letters, how technology is in a way really love. Letters are technology. Aspiring or yes, breathing? Both, yes. Yes, yes both. Okay. Yes. All the wonderful attributes of concrete visual poetry, I wanted to do a whole book of it. So it would never seem like it was a compliment to or an add-on. Like I, I, I was part of doing um, a selected poem earlier in that year, 1980. Maybe a selected was 79. It has some full-page concrete poem, but it also has concrete poems reduced as like illustrations seeming, which is not their intent. It was just so much to pack in that one book that selected, and so I had this yearning developing more and more at that time, and, and result from, from doing that selected, to have a book that was only concrete visual work. In other words, as many aspects as I could think of. And to say as much as you could. Yes, with that medium, yes. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Would you say, again, that that's, that's sort of behind what you're doing, is to try to say as much as you possibly can with yes. every aspect of, what, communication? Yes. Yeah, totally, I would say that. To, to fill it with With everything much, I can. And then your ideal reader would be... Looking for everything he or she could, too. So hopefully there's a meeting, a sharing. Yeah. That's a great way to end it. Excellent. Thanks Excellent, so much. Dude. Oh, you're welcome. Thank, Thank you. you. I'd be speaking with uh, Bill Bissett, who is uh, an iconic Canadian poet, painter, sound artist, and uh, a, an important influence on many who have followed in his footsteps. Thanks again. Oh, thank you again. You're welcome. Excellent.